Well, thank you to our worship team this morning for bringing our hearts to that place of worship. And I know that that is necessary, that our hearts be tuned right before God as we open up this word together and we continue to worship him under the authority of his scripture. Please join me in the reading of God's word. You can follow along as I read in Romans chapter 5, the first 11 verses. Romans 5, beginning verse 1, Paul writes, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For, while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone might dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. In our study of this first half of chapter 5, Paul has taken us to the blessedness of being under the justification of God's work in us through faith. And that blessedness comes in the peace that we have with God, our standing in our introduction to this God of grace. We stand in grace today in Christ. We have peace with God and we rejoice in the glory that is to come for us. Paul then takes us into the sanctifying work or the growing work that God does under his declaration of his people. You are now justified by, by me. You have peace with me. And in Christ, you stand in grace. And therefore, even in tribulations, God continues to work his blessings in our lives, growing us in perseverance, proven or tested character. And a hope that does not disappoint. In other words, a strong, fast hope, a confident expectation in all that God is. Why? Because His love has been poured out into our hearts. The Spirit of God that has been given to us. And Paul does not stop here. But he takes us back to that, now to the cross where we're going to be this morning in verse 6 down through 11. The atonement of Christ that comes, or makes possible, I should say, our justification, the atonement of Christ. This is where we're going to set up camp this morning, beginning in verse 6. The third part of our study of these first half of Romans chapter 5 is an examination of the substitutionary atonement that was accomplished by Jesus Christ and believed upon by the sinner that God would declare them, declare us, justified in his presence this is an essential part of justification because without the atonement none of us would be justified we're again reminded that our faith cannot save us 
only the atonement of Christ, the work of Christ on the cross saves. It was necessary for our salvation. Faith is only the instrument that brings us into this salvation. The provision of salvation is the cross of God's Son. And it's in these verses that Paul gets into some specifics on the atonement that has made this justification possible. Verse 5 left off, left us off with the understanding that the love of God has been poured out within our hearts, the hearts of believers poured out there by the Holy Spirit that was given to us. And the very next verse says what? For. It is a connecting word. And you're going to notice that in all of the subsequent verses, 6 down through 11, there's an ongoing continuation of these connecting words telling us there's a stream of thought here. And that stream of thought is flowing right out of the pouring out of the love of God into our hearts. That love of God was necessary for our sanctification. It is necessary now. The flowing out or the pouring out of God's love continues for us today as believers. But Paul's going to take us back again to the atonement of Christ where the love of God was poured out into us that any of us would be saved. And I want you to notice those connecting words, for in verse 6, for in verse 7, but God in verse 8, verse 9, much more than. I know different translations are going to word it differently, but these are connecting words telling us there is a stream of thought here in regard to how God has poured out his love into the heart of sinners. The facts being shared here in chapter 5 are not specifically evangelistic as if to bring sinners to salvation. Paul wrote these gospel truths to encourage, to bring insurance and security in those who are already saved. And we can see clearly, I think, from these verses that there's not a full gospel presentation down in verse 6 through 11. Paul doesn't hit every detail. He doesn't hit every mark because he's writing to people that already know the cross. They've already been saved. And we can see that all the way beginning in verse 1 down through verse 11, the pronouns that Paul uses, we and us. He's identifying himself with those that are already saved. These are people that know the cross. They know what Christ did, but he's going to recap some of those gospel truths that we need to understand that we might have assurance. In our study this morning from verse 6 to 11, there are three points that I want to take hold of that we're going to give consideration to. First, the description of those who are atoned for. This is what we were prior to Christ. This is what each of us were. When the Holy Spirit poured out the redemptive love of God within us. Then we're going to consider, at least examine, the one that's doing the atoning. And then we'll finally look at the work of atonement itself. We're going to begin, though, with those that have been atoned for. Again, a picture, a description of what each of us were when Christ came to us, when God came to us and drew us to his Son. When Christ came to us with his atoning work. Our present culture, you know this well, is driven by selfishness, self-admiration, and self-love, and self-righteousness. And along with this comes an incredible display of self-confidence. Our secular culture is not the only place that this mindset is encountered. It is very often found within what is called Christianity, especially 
in the area of Christian psychology, which promotes self-esteem over esteeming Christ and his word. And the Christian psychologist is never likely to admit that, but the premise of supplementing God's word with the academic studies of fallen, unsaved men is based on a higher view of sinful man that God gives to us. It is based on a higher view of the nature of man than God describes in his word of us. Well-known Christian psychologist Larry Crabb once claimed that man's most basic need is a sense of personal worth and acceptance of oneself as a whole, real person. Again, man's most basic need is a sense of personal worth an acceptance of oneself as a whole, real person. That is not the description that the Word of God gives to humanity. We are not whole. We are broken. And far from having a personal sense of worth, the Scripture defines us as dead in our sins, dead to God. We see in our world today, and this is a military slogan we've heard, be all you can be. And it's not just the military that advances that. Our whole culture is about that. Hey, today, if you're a man and you want to be a woman, you can be all you can be. That's the reality of our culture today. It is self-centered, it is self-focused, and it is self-promoting. And we are just bleeding with self-confidence. The prosperity movement within the church, prefers a God that wants to satisfy everything I want. That's God's greatest goal, is to give me everything I desire. Personal desires, health, wealth, prosperity, rather than to glorify God himself. And given this cultural mindset, it would be extremely difficult for many to read what Paul has to say here in verse 6 to 11 about unregenerate humanity. I think it's even the tendency of many truly saved believers to to think that the Holy Spirit poured out God's love within their hearts after they made a decision to let him do so. Or to put it another way, God could not move in a loving, redemptive way until we chose him. What is striking in this context is the, the view that, or the view of contrast that Paul gives to us where the love of God was poured out by his spirit into the kind of hearts that are undeserving. They are not righteous. They're not capable. There's no self-worth. There is no wholeness. That's what God poured out his love into. The contrast here is that of the glory, the power, and the graciousness of God's love over and against the very darkness of humanity. This is a picture of the Holy Spirit overcoming our human brokenness to bring life where sin has brought death. So note with me the ones who are atoned for, beginning with their helplessness. The moment that God's love was poured into the hearts of unsaved people, is when they were helpless and he brought them to salvation. And the Greek word here for helpless means they're without strength, they are impotent, without power, feeble and weak. Left to ourselves, we have no natural ability, no inner strength to be discovered here, no hidden power or resources to do anything that would please God or that would help God out in any way. 
That's entirely different than our culture would advance in humanity. We had nothing to offer. No abilities here. And according to the word of God, what abilities do we absolutely not have? What are we entirely incapable of doing? Well, we've already seen in Romans chapter 3, we have no capability to do any good, to produce any righteousness. We have no ability to seek God. And we've all gone astray, and we have no ability to do otherwise. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it tells us that man's condition left him, left us, unable to accept the things of God, to understand the things of God, or even to embrace God by faith for who he is. In John chapter 3, Jesus said man has no ability to enter the kingdom of God unless the Spirit of God raises him to life. You must be born again. We have no power to enter heaven, the kingdom of God. And in John chapter 6, we read that, no, that man does not even have the ability <clears throat> to hear the gospel and reach out and take hold of Jesus by faith apart from the power of God intervening on his behalf. These are the words of Jesus. No man can come to me unless the Father, what? Draws him. It's the power of God that must do that. I don't have the ability in myself. None of us do. And further, man cannot even give himself permission to believe. As Jesus repeats in, in verse 65 of John 6, no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by the Father. I can't even give myself permission to believe. R.C. Sproul in his commentary in Romans, and perhaps we can bring this up on the screen, he writes, the idea of moral inability is this. We have been plunged so deeply into sin that we do not have the moral capacity to incline ourselves in any way to the things of God. If God in his mercy and grace were to offer us complete forgiveness and salvation in Jesus Christ, but do nothing to work in our hearts, we would never exercise that option. That is not the mindset of our culture today. But this is what Paul is telling us we were found in when the Spirit of God poured the love of God, the redemptive love of God into our hearts. We were helpless. We had no power. We had no ability. And what Sproul said there is that if God provided everything on the cross so that we might be saved, but he didn't intervene on, behind, on behalf of our helpless hearts, we would never take the option of the cross. We need the love of God poured out in our hearts. Second, Paul goes on to describe us as ungodly, or we would say godless. Back in chapter 1, verse 18, remember, the wrath of God was revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in their own wickedness. It's that ungodliness, that's, that godlessness that Paul is describing here in Romans 5. In this expression, Paul writes that prior to the pouring out of God's love within us, we were without any likeness of God. It wasn't found in us. 
Now, the creation account tells us that man and woman was created in the image of God. We were intended to be image bearers of God. But the spiritual reality is that sin has so corrupted every part of our image within us that we are declared as ungodly or godless prior to coming to faith in Christ. There is no part, there isn't even the tiniest portion of God's image within us that has not been corrupted by sin in some measure. Therefore, God says you are godless. You are ungodly without Christ. And these godless ones are the ones whom the Holy Spirit poured his love into. In other words, when God came to us and drew us into faith, we had no ability to choose him, and we had no godliness in us. Third, verse 8, Paul says, you are also sinners or filled with sin, or the scripture would describe us as sinful. And this godless condition, this helpless condition, came upon humanity when our great-grandparents in the garden made the choice to disobey God. And all of their children, all of us thereafter, have continued to live in disobedience toward him. So that in verse 8 we read that the proof of God's love for his people was that his son died for us while we were yet this kind of sinner. Romans chapter 3 has already given us a picture of the whole of humanity being affected when it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the glory of God speaks about his absolute perfections in righteousness and in goodness and grace and mercy and power and wisdom, just to name a few. But because of sin, man cannot live up to any one of God's perfections. We fail at every one of them. We fall short of his glory in every single quality of God's likeness and personality. Because of this, we can't keep his laws. We can't walk according to his purposes. We don't desire his will or his pleasures. And it's while each and every one of God's people were in this state of sinfulness that again his spirit poured out his atoning, redemptive love within our hearts. He came to us to regenerate our dead hearts, granting to us the ability to believe. God did not wait for our self-improvement programs to take effect and say, now they're ready. Rather, God came to his people in love and provided the only atonement that could deliver us from his sin. And you will notice there's a fourth quality. We were helpless we were without God, godliness, and we were sinful. But Paul goes on to say we are also enemies of God, hostile to God. And this is where, again, verse 5, the Spirit of God pours out his love into these ones that were enemies. It was not simply a matter of us having the inability to walk in God's laws. We had no ability to even be a friend to God, to admire God to love God, or to think God is just an okay guy. We were enemies to him. Colossians 1, verse 21 to 22. <clears throat> this is how we were described to the Colossian believers that came to faith in Christ. Paul writes, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death, in order to present you before him holy 
and blameless and without reproach. Go back and look at that word hostile in mind. That is exactly the word that Paul in the Greek language uses in Romans 5. We were enemies to him, meaning we were hostile in our minds to who God is. And this hostility toward God applies to everyone who rejects the Son of God as Lord and Savior, even the most religious in the world. Second statement I want us to read together is from James Montgomery Boyce. This one might be a little bit hard to swallow until you hear the last sentence. But he speaks about our enmity toward God, it That hostility toward God affirms that not only we are unable to save ourselves, are unlike and opposed to God, and are violators of his law, but we are also opposed to God in the sense that we would attack him and destroy him if we could. Being like Satan in his desires, we would drag God from his throne, cast him to hell, and crush him into nothingness if that were possible which is what many people actually tried to do when God came among them in the person of Jesus Christ. Look, we may sit here and think before we came to faith in Christ, we weren't that angry with God. We weren't capable, certainly, of dragging God from his throne, but this seed was in our hearts. And if you don't believe it, just read the account of Christ's crucifixion because that's exactly what mankind did. They attempted to take God and destroy him, cast him into hell. That's the hostility that men saw in their depravity when Jesus, when God came to earth. And they saw a man that is truly holy and perfect. The God one came. And that was man's response to God. It's doubtful that any of us thought ourselves to be quite so hostile. Quite such an enemy. But what Boyce is reminding us of is that the most religious people on earth, the ones that thought themselves so devoted to God, did that very thing to God or attempted to do so when they nailed him to the cross. And prior to faith in Christ, remember in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2, it said, we also walked according to the course of who? Satan the prince of the power of the air. We were there once. And this is what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. This was brought up in our Sunday school class just this morning of the Jewish religious leaders that Paul was describing in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 8. He said, this was the wisdom of man. They destroyed the Son of God or thought they were. If they had God's wisdom, which none of the rulers of this age had understood. If they had understood it, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. We know it's in the heart of man to hate God. And the evidence of that is the cross of Christ. But we cannot limit this description of being enemies with God as merely applied to us. Paul continues in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 3 to describe us prior to coming to faith in Christ as children of the wrath of God. Not only do we see God as our enemy, but God sees us as his enemy. And this is the very thing that is so amazing about his love. God loved those that he saw as enemies to him. And we saw him as our enemies. This is when his love was poured out within us. 
There was nothing in us that made us favorable to him. Or another way to say this is that there was nothing in us that made us worthy of his grace. God was our enemy and we were his enemies when he came to us with his atoning love. This is why his son came to this earth, to save his enemies. What this passage teaches us is that we are entirely unfit and undeserving of God's love. Steve Diebler was leading the class in Sunday school this morning, and he asked the question probably many of us have asked, why did God save me? We look at what we were here. Why did God save me? And the thing that sometimes amuses me comes from Paul's answer to that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I should just turn back and read that real quick because it sets the context here. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26, For for consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things, the shameful things. So why were you chosen? Why were you saved? It wasn't because there was anything in us, to be sure. It's interesting that Paul's language, as Stephen read this morning from Philippians chapter 3. Here was a very righteous man, a very dedicated Jew. Paul the Pharisee, back then Saul. And he's evaluating everything that he'd done in the name of God, all his righteousness, all his morality, all his devotion to the law. And in Philippians chapter 3, he said, it's all what? Rubbish. Rubbish. This is a word that we, in our language, would probably prefer not to use. Because it means dung. Or the trash that is thrown out for the dogs. This is what God saw in us when he saved us. This doesn't fit well with the self-esteem movement, our culture. I don't know that this is even entirely appropriate, but I was reading on the news that this has to do with service animals. And there was a flight going from New Zealand to France, apparently, and somebody brought a service animal on, and the service animal had a gas problem. And it continued. And it was so revolting that a couple had to ask to be moved to the back of the plane. So they were moved out of the executive class back to the budget class, and they demanded that they get a refund for the flight. That's kind of a gross story, but in reality, that's what Paul is saying in Philippians 3 about what he had to offer God. It stank. It was garbage. It was rubbish. And the graphic language that Scripture gives to us, unredeemed, unregenerate, sets the backdrop of the glory of God in saving us. This is when the love of God, the redemptive love of God, was poured out into your heart. You were an enemy, hostile to God. He saw you as an enemy, and we saw him as our enemy. Helpless, unable, sinners, contrary to God's laws. This is when he said, I want that one. I will redeem that one. I love that one. This is an amazing picture of the cross, is it not? These verses before us are some of the most powerful demonstrations or proclamations of God's saving power. 
It had nothing to do with me. The only thing I had to offer was foolishness, a lack of wisdom, ignorance, weakness, inability, dung, stench. And yet, God loved. And this is where we turn our attention to the one that does the atoning from Romans chapter 5. One of the pictures that we have of God in these first 11 verses is that of his triunity. Did you notice that? Father, Son, Spirit, all working in love, doing the work of redemptive love, having their heart and mind and purpose and pleasure set on atoning for these ones that stank so bad, helpless, contrary, enemies of God, And this picture of the triunity of God, all three persons in the Godhead being named and working here, helps us avoid some very wrong conceptions or wrong concepts of God himself. We often hear the world even talking of God as this angry God that's mean and vengeful. And sometimes even within the Christian community, they present Jesus as almost coming to step in between God's anger and to rescue him from his vengeance against us. That is not the picture of the cross, is it? God demonstrated his love. God poured out his love when he sent his son. The spirit pours out that divine love of the father into our hearts. And we see the love of the savior here, willing to die for his sheep, as John 10 says. Jesus was sent by God the Father to rescue us from his wrath. And it's the Spirit of God that has been commissioned. Pour out this love of God into the hearts of the people that he has chosen for himself. Verses 1 to 11 teach us the perfect harmony within the Godhead. Father, Son, Spirit working in perfect unity to express redemptive love to the sheep of God's pasture. First, we see Christ's sacrifice. Verse 6 and 8, Christ died for us. Paul expresses the death of Jesus as a sacrifice that he made on behalf of his people. And this sacrifice was made because of the love that is mutually expressed by Father, Son, and Spirit. This death was only alluded to back in verse 1, where we're at peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How is peace made? In verse 1, we're not told specifically, but we know it came through the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul doesn't need to explain this to the Roman Christians because they already knew Jesus died on the cross as an atoning sacrifice for their sins. They knew about his death. They were made whole where sin had left them broken and defiled before God. And as verse 1 declared, along with the first four chapters... By faith in a Christ's atoning sacrifice alone, it couldn't be by their works. God has declared them justified in his presence. Certain things about Christ's death were not needed to be stated in Romans chapter 5 because these believers already knew Calvary. In verse 6, we read that at the right time, Jesus died for the ungodly. Now, in one part... The timing of his coming to die for us was while we were still helpless and ungodly. That's a point that's made here in verse 6. And that's an undetermined time, a nonspecific time 
Because there's never been a time in humanity where there wasn't that helplessness after the garden. But another part of the timing was a divinely appointed moment determined by God for a son to die for the ungodly ones. Both of these views are in play. The timing of us being in our depravity and the timing of God that he appointed for his son. Christ died for his people while they were helpless in their sins and Christ died at the time that was suitable for the purposes of God. In Galatians chapter 4, we read that when the fullness of time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those under the law, and that we might receive the adoption of sons. That's a different word for time. There in Galatians 4, the word in the Greek is chronos, where we get the word chronology. And that's the idea of a duration of time, a quantity of time, a space of time. But here in Romans chapter 5, Paul uses a word, kairos, that is a time marked by certain features. And that causes us to understand that God sent his son at just the right time in Israel's history to fulfill prophecy. Here was an Israel that was enamored with self-righteousness, parading their Judaism as superior to all other peoples. They had security in the kingdom of God because of what they owned, their inheritance, their lineage, their possession of the law. And they vaunted themselves around as righteous men when God says, no, your righteousness is as dung, rubbish. God knew exactly the time in Israel's chronology or sequence of events to bring his son into the kairos or the specific time that had certain characteristics to it. They were under Roman rule. That was important, necessary to the fulfillment of again of prophecy. At the right season in God's redemption plan was set in motion. Jesus was born into humanity. He lived in holiness. He lived in service to God. He was arrested and crucified bearing the sins of his people and dying to make atonement for sins. That had to happen at a certain time in history. Certain characteristics had to be fulfilled. And God did so at the right time. Paul adds that the sacrificial of death of Christ was not like how we might die for somebody else. Notice verse 7. On rare occasions, someone might die for what might be seen as a righteous person, at least humanly speaking. And even more so for somebody that might be good. Now there are some that believe the righteousness and the good that is described in verse 7 are just synonyms or synonymous with each other. Others believe, and I likely to agree with them, that there's a different level of goodness in the word good. It's possible for a righteous man to be morally a decent person, but without care, without love. The good person is maybe what we might see as a person with a good heart, kind, caring, compassionate. You might die for somebody like that, Paul says, maybe. Whatever the meaning of the descriptions, the point that Paul makes in verse 7 is that there's some cases where a person might sacrifice their life for a decent individual. But compare that to what Jesus did and what we just learned about humanity. Helpless 
sinners, unrighteous, incapable of doing any good, and hostile to the very person of God. And God was angry. His wrath was upon us as well. Who's going to die for a person like that? Son of God did. The Son of God made the ultimate sacrifice to make his enemies his friends, to make his enemies his sheep, his church. And then Paul speaks of God. He's not this vengeful God that Jesus needed to come in and rescue us from. This was God's redemptive plan. It was God's love that administrated this atonement. So in addition to naming the sacrifice of Christ, Paul emphasized this was a demonstration of God's love for sinners. Verse 8, what moved man's salvation into motion was God's compassion for us. It is a love we've already seen to be not that much like our love. We generally love others based on some kind of attractiveness, in part maybe a physical attraction or a pleasantness in the person. We love our family because, well, they're our own flesh and blood. Generally, that love is returned, at least in some measure. We love people that treat us kindly, respectfully. We may love those who are generous and giving towards us. But again, God's love is not like this, as we've already seen. He went after the foolish things, the broken things. And again, in verse 8, the timing of redemption is stated. It is while we were yet sinners, Christ died. He didn't wait for us to improve. He didn't wait for us to think about the gospel and think, well, maybe Jesus wasn't such a bad guy. This is a statement of timing that more likely means that God's determination to save was not based on our sinful condition, but on his love for us in our sinful condition. That's the time. I say this because I wasn't even alive when Jesus died. And therefore, if the point was the timing of this event, it doesn't fit to say that I was yet a sinner when Christ died for me because he died 2,000 years before I came into this world. So, well, at stating a timing, more than that, what Paul is saying, God came to us in our present condition. Christ died for us, God knowing this is who we would be. Knowing, looking back at Old Testament history, this is my elect back then. I know what they were. I know what the Jews are today. I know what Saul is today. And I know what Monty will be tomorrow. We're an awful mess. We're broken. We're fallen. But God demonstrated his love in sending his son. The point that Paul makes in verse 8 was that God's redemptive plan was not determined by our sinful condition. He loved us anyway, and the cross went forward as planned with the full knowledge that every person that God would save by his son's sacrifice was his enemy. We were haters of God. We were sinners, defiant to his laws. He loved us anyway. We had no ability to seek God to save us. He loved us anyway. We're not only entirely unlike God, we had no interest in being godly and were fiercely opposed to his divine character and he loved us anyway. To demonstrate that love, God says, I'm going to send my son to die for you that we might be saved. 
And this is where we consider the atonement of Christ, what he has done for us, the work of the atonement. On behalf of sinners is the passage that raises the question, for whom did Christ die? In verse 6, we read that at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. We cannot interpret that to mean that Christ died for all those who are ungodly, since we already know from chapter 3 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we have to object to the idea that because of the sacrifice of Christ, he atoned for the sins of all humanity, and therefore all sinners go to heaven. We know this is false based on the clear teaching of God's word that his judgment comes against sinful humanity. And therefore, not all of man's sins were covered on the cross. Not all are going to heaven. Those, have, those who have rejected the blood, of sac, or blood sacrifice of Christ do not have their sins covered or atoned for. Paul's already covered the present coming judgment of God. All the way back into chapter 2 in Romans. The ungodly in verse 6 must then mean those sinners who come to faith and are justified by God as a result of Christ's sacrifice. And that's why Paul says we, us, were the redeemed. We were ungodly, but God has changed us. He loved us anyway. Paul says, for while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Paul was telling these believers that they were the helpless and godly ones that Jesus came to die for. And Paul continues on through verse 11. God demonstrated his love for us. Christ died for us. All this to say, Jesus died for the sins of his people, those whom God would draw to his son. And so Paul continues to describe what was accomplished as Jesus made atonement for the sins of of his people, the sins of the elect, the sins of those that God would choose to draw to his son and permit them to believe. First, they were rescued from God. If you're filling in the blanks, I get very tricky here because all the blanks are going to be God. <laughs> or rescued or saved from God. Jesus made atonement for his people to save them. Verse 9 says that we are justified by the blood sacrifice of God's Son because we have faith in who God is and what he has accomplished through his Son on the cross. It was necessary that God came to us, taking on a body of flesh to represent us. That's what Jesus did. He had to be God in order to be perfect and spotless, offering to God that which is pure, and there could be no sin in the one who saves us, or else he would need a Savior as well. And God's Son must also come in a body of flesh in order to be sacrificed as one of us to represent us. On the cross, Jesus took our sin upon himself, and God turns his own wrath against his Son to bring against Christ, the Holy One. And he brings his holy judgment against God. God poured out his wrath against his son because that was the sin that Jesus was carrying, our sin. This is the substitutionary aspect of his atonement. Jesus took our place 
and receive the wrath of God because he bore our sins on the cross. And then after Jesus was judged for sin, the blood of Jesus was poured out on the cross as he willingly surrendered his life to make full payment for sin. The wages of sin is death. Yet Paul does not stop at that explanation. He writes that we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. This means that those who put their faith in the atonement of Christ are saved from the coming judgment of God's wrath against sin. The blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ has then saved us from God's righteous anger against our sin, our ungodliness, our hostility, even our helplessness. But verse 10 also says that we are justified by his blood. And God is the one who declares us to be justified. God is the one who demonstrated his love for us in sending Christ his son to die for us. And therefore, it is God who has saved us from himself because of his love for us. That's the mystery of the cross, isn't it? God saved us from himself because of his love for us. And not only are we saved from his eternal judgment, But in verse 10, we are saved by the resurrection life of Christ, meaning that we're given eternal life with Christ. Not only are we saved from judgment, but we're granted life because he, Christ, lives. Second, we are reconciled to God. Verse 10 continues to describe the atoning work of Christ as that which took the enemies of God and reconciled them to God himself. It's again important for us to see that while we were once God's enemies, he was also our enemy. He was against our sin to the extent that his wrath is what we have been saved from. That's what was coming against us. God himself and his anger towards our sin. God's wrath is a strong word here. And it speaks of his fierce anger and severe judgment that is stored up for what is called the day of his wrath as written of back in chapter 2. And it was there that Paul wrote of those who refuse to repent and trust in Christ in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 2 in Romans. I read them. Romans 2, 5 and 6. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, You are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to their deeds. We were saved from God himself and we are reconciled to him. Once enemies, we are now made to be his friends. We can enter into his presence. We can have fellowship with God. God's love for those whom he would save was demonstrated, proven to us when he sent his son to make atonement for our sin. The blood of Christ was poured out on the cross to satisfy God's holy anger against sin and the resurrection of his son promises eternal life for all who believe. That's a picture of reconciliation. God reconciled sinners to himself, which means that all hostilities have been ended between us because of the cross. Because of the empty tomb, the whole drama of being an enemy to God and he to us is ended with the atoning sacrifice of his son. And it is God in his love for sinners that has caused this reconciliation. A relationship of peace has been established. That's what verse 1 says. Verse 2 says we're standing in grace 
No longer standing in condemnation and wrath and judgment. We stand in grace. We've been introduced to the God of grace. And what do we anticipate in this reconciliation? Eternal glory. We shall forever be in the presence of God that loves us like this. And as a result, finally we rejoice in God. We've been reconciled. We've been saved from God's wrath. What are we going to do about that? How does a true believer respond? We would say we respond in worship. We rejoice. We exult in God. And again, that word means we boast in the God that saves us, in the cross of Christ, in our Savior Jesus. We boast of the Spirit that brought this love to us in spite of what we were. Reconciling sinners is God's work and what caused him to do this work for his enemies was his love for us. And only those who truly believe can appreciate this truth in the atonement of sinners. Why do we sing together? Because together as believers, we have that joy. We rejoice, we exult, we praise, we boast in God. It is the love of God for us that has compelled him to act on our behalf. It's the love of the Savior, the Savior who loved his sheep, that he was laid down his life for them. It's the Holy Spirit that pours out this divine love into us that we might believe, be raised to life, and be saved. The love of Father and Son and Spirit has claimed us, saved us, and reconciled us. We have this understanding. We have this assurance. We rejoice greatly in this God who saves and reconciles. Now, in summary or in conclusion, verses 1 to 11, this first half of Romans chapter 5, are meant to bring assurance to those who belong to Christ. If you're here today and in Christ, This is the security that we own because God has claimed us. And if this morning you're not in Christ, we just encourage you, listen carefully to what the atonement of Christ has accomplished. And perhaps God is speaking to your heart right now and drawing him to yourself. You don't need to wait to talk to me or the end of the service. You cry out right now, God, would you save me a sinner? And the scripture says he turns no one away. Our assurance is grounded in the atoning sacrifice of God's Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And this was fully God's plan. It was fully successful in His Son. And it was all done in love for those whom God determined to save. And in each of the three headings that we've looked at in studying this first half, we've seen this word exult, highlighting the praise of God's people for what he's done. And this exulting is a weighty word that carries the idea of praising, boasting in God. We, we do this praise throughout our week. We gather corporately to do this. In our obedience and our actions, we do this. In our conversations, our singing, in our service to Christ and to his church, this is our praise, our exaltation, our boasting, our security in Christ will be reflected in our praises of him. And from these praise verses, we express our security in Christ. And I want to just close with three observations. Number one, we rejoice in the blessing of God's glory for us. We rejoice in the blessing of God's glory for us. This glory is a present transformation as we take on the likeness of Christ, at least in part and in measure. 
but it's also a reminder that the eternal heaven awaits us where we're going to be fully glorified. And that's not going to be the improved Monty. It's going to be all about Christ. It's not about our fleshly desires. Heaven won't be about what we want here on earth. Heaven will be all about the glory of Christ. So if you want to know what your future glorification will be like, think Jesus. It's not about you. It will all be Him. We rejoice in the blessing of God's glory for us. Second, we rejoice in growth through tribulation. Growth through tribulation. We saw this in verses 3 to 5. The trials of this life should remind us as believers, should assure us of believers, God is at work in me. God is at work in me. He's producing endurance. He's going to give me a tested or a proven character and a strength and confidence or hope in God. And when we submit ourselves to that sanctifying work, we know where it comes from. It's the love of God being poured out into our hearts by the Spirit of God that was given to us. You see, the same love that saved us is the love of God that also sanctifies us. And third, we rejoice in the atoning sacrifice of God's love for us. We rejoice in the atoning sacrifice of God's love for us. The atonement of Christ on the cross demonstrates God's love for his enemies, brings salvation and reconciliation. And I believe that when we see the contrast between what we once were and at that moment that God poured out the glory of his love into us, is that not going to fill our hearts with worship and praise, thanksgiving and adoration? What fuels are singing this morning? Is it not this, what Christ has done for us, what God has done for us in his love, the boasting that God is worthy of? can't be with our lips alone. It has to be with our obedience, the service of our lives, the thankfulness in our hearts, how we raise our children, how we do works on the job site, how we live in our neighborhoods, how we gather corporately and serve the king and worship the king because one day we'll be in the presence of the king. Father, we thank you for this amazing picture that Paul gives to us of your love for us, the Savior's love for his flock, and the Spirit's love in pouring out himself into our hearts, raising us from death to life, doing the work of faith within us so that we understand, we comprehend, and we willingly believe, accepting and trust who you are, who Christ is, and the work of the Spirit within us. Let this fuel our praises for you. Let this fill us with exaltation, even as we sing now and as we leave this place, rejoicing this week in all that you are and all, you, all that you've made us to be in Christ. We give you praise in his name. Amen. Please stand.